Hey Church of the Beloved, thanks for tuning in to our weekly sermon podcast. My name is Kevin Zoe and I'm the production manager here at COTV. Today's message is brought to us by Senior Pastor Clint Shamblin. He is preaching from Leviticus chapter 19 verses 1 through 19. Cheers, beloved. Nice to be with you guys again. If you don't know me, I am Clint. I'm also one of the pastors here. Glad to be called that. We're going to continue our Levitical series today. Uh, And Leviticus is very, very strange, very, very new to a lot of us. And it seems kind of odd. We're going to go down rules, laws, commands. Thus saith the Lord is all over the place. If you grew up with certain traditions that the only translation is King James, thus saith the Lord is very, very much on your mind and on your heart on a lot of this. But the Levitical series that we talked about last week, we talked about what is the importance of rules, of obedience? Where do we get that from? How is it that last week we talked about don't eat crickets and how we tried to unearth the blueprint of gospel life, of salvation, of grace, and what it means, and how to see that through the lens of Leviticus. This week, we're going to continue that theme of obedience, of laws. And, and you hear the word obedience, and if you're anything like me, you think, ugh. Let's not talk about obeying. Doesn't that feel restrictive? Doesn't that feel less than great? Don't we live in a time and age where obedience and rules and submission, get, get that out of here. No, 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 no. It's like a revival of Woodstock all of a sudden. It's peace, love, and free will everywhere. That's what it feels like to our sensibilities today. So we read Leviticus and we read these laws, and it sounds outdated. It sounds not connected. It sounds to us like if this is the God that you believe in, He's archaic. He doesn't fit in modern society anymore. Well, I want to show you how actually this set of laws, and and Pastor A did a great job reading it and getting the tone of it. I'm going to show you a feature of the end of that chapter. Uh, That's from years and years and years of having toddlers in my arm, like dive out and just (laughs) grabbing them really quick. I'm going to go here from here on out with it. My heart's racing now. (laughs) We're going to talk through the Levitical series, and at the end of it, how it comes to a very, very, very odd ending to where the reading stopped. Today, I want to show you that actually obedience is not stringent. It's not formulaic. It's not rigid. Actually, obedience is life-giving. It's freeing. I want to show you today that the blueprint of revival, the blueprint of grace, the blueprint of gospel has always been, will always be desire before obedience. If you leave with nothing else, I want you to hear God cares about your desire, the most paramount and pinnacle thing of your entire life. He wants your heart and your desire above all else. And in doing so, if he gets your desire, if he gets your heart, he will get your obedience. The three ways I want to show you that today is obedience flows from desire. Desire is first, obedience is next. Secondly, obedience creates desire. And then lastly, obedience ends with more desire. Obedience flows from desire, it creates desire, and at the end, it ends with more desire. 
First, I want to show you, uh, this passage of Leviticus has some very, very interesting uh, precepts to it. I don't know if you've caught it, if you understand the tone. And again, Pastor Abe did a great job at the end relating this kind of very, very odd concluding remark. Now, the rest of Leviticus continues on, and there's some really, really strange laws in there to us, to our Western uh, kind of sensible minds. But it starts with saying this. The passage has uh, leaving food for the migrant. It says, don't go back over your, your parcel of farmland. Leave the grapes on the ground. Don't leave it for gleaners. Leave it for those who are migrants. Don't hold somebody's wages overnight. We'll get to that in a moment, what that means. Justice. Don't, don't profane the name of God by having injustice in the courts. And then there's like this record scratch stop that happens. And it says, don't have mixed fiber clothing. And you're like, what? I am the Lord God. And you're like, okay, why do you care that I have polyester on? I, I care if you have polyester on. Please stop that right now. Uh, but but why, why do you care that my whole suit is made of polyester? Why, why do you care if I have mixed fibers? Why do you care about that? Because in our sensible minds, we read things like care for the poor, don't have injustice, fight corruption. And we think, yes, praise God, don't have mixed fiber. Ah, God, I think, I, think there's a, I think there's a misunderstanding here. I think there's, a, there's not a commonality. I think there's a disjointed nature. You meant like one command to be higher than another, didn't you? Now, see, for you and I, this happens all the time in our social circles, don't we? We have certain commands that are of higher importance than other commands, right? There are probably five things, maybe give or take a few, that if your friends did, you would no longer be friends with them because they broke one of the cardinal sins of your life. Or at your workplace, you probably have one or five things that if you did, would be the, would be the death. It'd be a death blow. You'd be done. You'd be over. And we read the commands of God. He says, I am the Lord your God. And he says, don't let mixed cattle breed and don't wear mixed fiber. And also don't have perverted justice in the court system. And it doesn't make sense to us. See, it seems absurd because the, the, the fashion police on E don't carry the same withholding as actual police. We don't think those two things should go together. And actually what I want to show you is you and I have a sinful nature to take things that are minor and make them major and things that are major and make them minor. And we make a list of more important sins and less important sins. And then we say, this is how I'll operate. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was very famous for this. He actually had a Bible that he called The Morals and Life of Jesus of Nazareth. And what he did is he went throughout the entire Bible and he cut out passages he didn't like. And he just threw them away. And then what he had left was this holy, that's such a bad pastor joke. You guys missed it. Like he cut out pieces, there's holes in it. Gosh, it's so bad, I know. He had a very, very, very holy Bible in that things were missing. There were holes all around it. And he said, aha, this is a God I can get behind. See, for you and I, we do this today in church, don't we? We do this all the time. We hear, depending on what side of a spectrum we may belong on, we hear something like, find the sinner and cast them out. Find the person that's, that's corrupt and get rid of them. I care about purity. I, catch, I, I care about sexual ethic. I care about all this. Remove the sinner. And we go, ha ha, truth and justice. And then another spectrum, we go, no, 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 no. It says, he who has sin, throw, cast the first stone. He who has no sin, cast the first stone. And we think, aha, grace, mercy. And we say, that's more important. And then each group goes home and thinks to themselves, man, I'm so biblical. 
I'm just the most biblical Christian I know. And yet, this is what's wild. This is what's so interesting about Leviticus. The reason he has God Almighty put in the same exact passage, don't pervert justice in the courts and don't have mixed fiber, is because he's telling you and I this. You and I have a tendency to overinflate things that are preferential to us about morality and laws. We have hobby horses we care about more than the Bible does. See, one of the things that Christianity is really, really hard to get to understand why we have to submit to God's way is because you and I, left to our own devices, would make certain sins terminable. We'd, we'd make them death blows, and we'd make other sins not so bad. Now, typically, they reside in our own actions. <laughs> typically, we like sins that, that we do because they're not so bad, well, because I would be judged if that was the case. But the other person, they, ooh, those people. See, Leviticus, what it is doing is it is telling us, don't you dare try to make one sin more important or more sinful than another sin. Don't you dare. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you really uncomfortable, God says. I'm going to make the perversion of justice in the court system and the care of migrant children who are hungry at the border at the same exact breath I talk about your clothing choices. And you know what that does to us? Church, can I, can I encourage you with something? Can you be skeptical about your faith, please? I beg you, be skeptical of your faith. I beg you. And you say, whoa, 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 pastor, aren't you supposed to like assure me of faith and tell me not to question things? No. I'm to assure you of salvation and the grace of Jesus Christ Almighty. That's my assurance. On you, here's what I want to assure you of. You see dimly. We see but through a veil, as Scripture says. And my job is to convince you that the way we see things isn't that great, but the way that God sees things, ah, that's beautiful. So what we do is we look at trying to level the playing field, and we try to say, yes, obedience is good, but only of the things that I think are good. And we make some sort of priority list, and God says, you can't do that with me. You can do that. Jeffersonian Bibles, sure, you can do that. And at the same token, he says, but that's not who I am. Now, imagine if you had a friend, and you're speaking with your friend, and you say to your friend, uh, hey, my favorite food is Italian food. And your friend looked at you and said, no, it's not. You're like, excuse me? They said, no, your, your favorite food is not Italian. It's sushi. And you're like, I, I can't stand sushi. And you're like, no, congratulations, it is. What would you say of that friend that you had? You would look at them and go, you're crazy. It's me. I get to speak for me. Church, here's my challenge to you. Why do we do that with God? Why do we look to God and say, no, God, clearly you didn't mean this part. You didn't mean that at all. How foolish of you. You don't like Italian. You like sushi, God. And he goes, why are you speaking on my behalf? I'm fine to speak for myself. See, church, one of the things we get into a big problem with is that Leviticus shows us you and I cannot have preferential understandings of which aspects of the Bible to hold on to and which aspects of the Bible not to hold on to. We don't get to do that. We don't get to be Thomas Jefferson. Obedience means first. It must mean this. It must mean this. If that's the case, if God is a God that says, it, it boils our sensibility that justice in the course and, and clothing options are the same level. It boils us and it should boil us. It should just make us feel uncomfortable. 
Because after each and every command that he gives, how does he start the entire passage? Be holy as I am holy. And then he ends, I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. He's cluing us into something. He's telling us something. Each time you read a passage and it, it just riles you up and it gets at you and it digs, this is the assurance I give you. God is asking us to not pervert justice in the court system and not neglect the migrant worker and the migrant kids and the hungry. He's asking us to do that because of this. It must be because it has something to do with connection to him outside of the law itself. It must. He is a God that cares for the migrant. He is a God that cares for the poor. He is a God that cares for purity. He is a God that is all of those things. That's what it must mean. Because I... I don't know if I truly want to worship a God. Here's, here's my skepticism that I want to help encourage you. I don't know if I really want to worship a God that keeps polyester on the same token as migrant children. I don't know if that suits me so well. It, it bugs me. And you know what God says? Good. I'm glad it bugs you. That means you're going away from the world you know and the world that I know is becoming more and more real to you. Let me try to explain this a little further. Let me try to give it within the scope of our sensibilities. We we might say something like, yes, racism needs to end. It's awful. It's horrible. It's an abomination. And we all say, amen, this is great. But then you might get pushback from somebody and, and and you might think to yourself, well, why is racism bad? And that sounds weird. Doesn't it sound weird to ask the question, why is racism bad? But here's my challenge. Without an all-loving, all-knowing, perfect, and holy God, trying to end racism is a stupid thing. Why? Because if you say to yourself, well, racism is bad. Uh, It doesn't serve its purpose. It's it's really, really bad. We we shouldn't do it. It's horrible to people. Um, And I would like to suggest, maybe humbly, uh, do you know that's the first time in the history of civilization we've ever thought that? The Mongols? No, they didn't think that. Uh, how about the Romans? Um, Romans had a law. This is, Romans had a law that if you were a citizen male of Rome and there was anybody else in the empire that was of a lower standing to you, do you know what you could do to them? Anything you wanted. Boy, girl, woman, child, teen, didn't matter. If they were lower than you and you were a citizen of Rome and you were a male of high standing, you could do anything you wanted to them. And it was actually expected of you. Why? Because a Roman male citizen was the best thing ever. Vikings, will of Valhalla, crusades, it's the Lord's will. See, you and I must understand that if we think to ourselves our own sensibilities, our own understanding, our own preferences, that preferences and morality can change from time and culture and place. So we can look at the Mongols and they say, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? End racism. No, 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 no. They're not part of your tribe. Overtake them. Subjugate them. Make them your slave. Overpower them. America. Enough said. (laughs) We We will use and abuse and take what we can for our own benefit. Do you see the problem with understanding that we need to end racism? But if it's not based upon anybody else besides us, if we're a preferential system to it, we will do things like this where we say, yes, racism bad. And then I would just simply ask you, do you think there'll come a time and a place in which 50% plus one think that racism's good? And if you say, no, that'll never happen. (laughs) Look, 60 years ago, 
Martin Luther King Jr., when he was alive, do you know that uh, they did a poll, a national poll? Do you know what his popularity, favorable, it was just favorable or unfavorable? Martin Luther King Jr., who now has every single major city, has a major thoroughfare named after him. He's an American icon, American hero. Do you know what his popularity was when he was alive? The highest it ever got. 19%. 19% of America's like, yeah, that's a good guy. Church, don't think for a second that if left to our own devices, we would prefer the right thing because we won't. Leviticus is telling us, you must submit to a better way because your way is to take certain things and make them more important. Your way is to constantly change morality. Your way is in one hand to have Jim Crow South and then 60 years later to change it and in 60 years from now it might revert back. But with God, God says, no, be holy because what? I am holy. I am the Lord your God. I have an eternal view. I have an infinite view. I am all good, all loving, all justice, all the time. And you are not. You are finite. You are small. You are infinite. You are, you are locked into the culture and the time and the place that you are only allowed to do. But God is not. Do you see? Church, the first thing we need to understand by Leviticus is you need to desire God's way above your way because he is higher and more exalted and has a better vantage point than you do. We don't. We don't, we don't, we don't. And the more you come to embrace that, the more you come to say, there's a phrase I like to use, and, and maybe this is a little, maybe you're not going to like this, but wear this on you, see how it fits. Uh, you and I are just like a bag of flesh. We're like, a, we're like a tree pod, just waiting to fertilize the ground. You go, wow, that's, that's really encouraging today. Thank you, Pastor, I appreciate that. I'm going to leave very, very encouraged. But here's my, here's my challenge to you. Without a God of the cosmos giving you insight to that, uh, there's an there's a author who wrote the book Sapiens. And, and, he, and he chronicled all the way through the human existence, all the way from uh, cavemen, all the way through evolutionary theory, and, and gets to the point where he says, as, as homo sapiens, as what we are today, he has a very, very important line. He says in one place, if you don't understand that the ant, the dog, the monkey in the world has the same exact rights as you do as a human, you don't understand the world. And I said, whoa. See, he's saying something that not a lot of us want to say. Not a lot of people in the world are willing to admit that if you believe in a material-only world, how can you put more value on human life than you can the ant trying to crawl up your table? You can't. It's disingenuous. You must come to one or two realities. You must admit hu human life has no meaning or human life has the same exact meaning as an ant that is on my kitchen table. There's no in-between. There can't be an in-between. Why? What gives us the right just because we have a higher brain capacity than the ant that we have more value? Because that's a dangerous game too, don't you think? Because all of a sudden, are we now going to test each other on our brain capacity to see what value we have in the world? Uh, that's, I don't want to play that game. <laughs> I'm on the bottom of the, of the rung on all y'all. <laughs> Please don't do that to me. Do you see what God is saying when he gives us these? And we say, no, God, clearly you don't mean polyesters are the same as migrant children. No, no, no. And he's telling us, why do you think you get to say so? And we go, well, because I'm smarter than you. 
That's what we should say if we were so bold. If we had audacity, that's what we would say. But what God wants to remind us again at the end of every single line, I am the Lord your God. And that is the reason you obey. Not because obedience gets us rewards, not because obedience is the right thing, not because we know it's natural law, inalienable rights that were given to all mankind. No, 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 we can't say that without God. The only reason you and I can end racism, the only way you and I can actually care about justice is if we say, he is the Lord our God. Because he's a God of justice. Because he's a God of mercy. Because he's a God of grace. Ah, now we're talking. And if that's the case, if the Lord our God favors those who are outside, you and I have no option but to obey that because we want his way, not our way. Do you see the switch that happens? Do you see the change that happens? Because without that, we can just make rules that go from generation to generation to generation. Or, wild thought, we can have laws that are eternal, that in Rome care for the poor. In America, care for the poor. The Mongols care for the poor. That isn't constrained by our context, but are eternal. That's the first point. Desire God first. And obedience comes from desire. Not upon reward or guilt or aversion from punishment, but because of desire. The second thing, once you obey, you desire more. Now, if we had a, a, a really an understanding like an Israelite, we would, this passage would hit us a little deeper. Uh, you guys remember philosophy 101 in undergrad? Um, if you don't, no, you're like, no, praise God. Michael Morgan's a moron for getting his doctorate in it. Like, what are you doing? Uh, it, but, but bear with me because it's fantastic. I love philosophy. I, I don't think he's a moron for doing it. I actually really appreciate it. Um, uh, that was, was not a dig at him at all. But do you remember, if you remember reading all these German philosophers would like, there would be something in German and your professor would read it and they'd start giggling to themselves because it was a zinger. And you're like, and then they would translate it to English and it would just like fall down flat on its face. You're like, oh, I bet that was really funny in German. And you're like, it's not funny in English. Okay, that's what's happening here a little bit. If you are reading through the, as an Israelite, you would come to verses, starting in verse 11 all the way down. And it starts doing this really, really interesting thing. God is speaking to the Israelite people. And he's saying things like brother, fellow citizen, people, neighbor. And if you and I were able to read it, we would see this progression. We would see this, this expanse that would be happening in all the laws. See, he starts first with talking about care for your brother. And then he says, care for your fellow citizen. Then he says, care for your neighbor. And then he says, care for anybody. Now, see, this is what's really wild, church, and this is what's really, really interesting. When I said at the beginning, first desire God's way above your way, that's how you come to understand his law as good and holy and how in racism and help impoverished people is good and eternal. It's the only way to do so. The second thing, once you start doing those things, here's what will happen. You start with your family of origin. Why? Because it's really easy to do that, right? It's really easy because you all speak assuming that you grew up in the same house, uh, how many of you can think back right now to the proper way a holiday meal is supposed to be cooked, right? And everybody in your family, there's a right way to cook it. And if you ever try to get other people involved in the holiday meal into the festival and they bring something that's outside of that, you're like, that's not how mom used to do it. What are you doing? You've ruined Thanksgiving. 
it's really easy to do that because there's a common shared core familial tie. There's blood, there's DNA. It's really easy for some of us, maybe. Others of us were like, nope. <laughs> Secondly, it goes to fellow citizen. This is really what's unique about this scripture and what it entails in it. And I'm going to try to understand the difference between fellow citizen and neighbor by going back to the law that says, don't hold a worker's wages overnight. Why does he say that? What is he doing there? It, it, we don't do that. How many of you are, are paid on the, the first Friday and the third Friday, right? We're like, oh, I'm going to go to my boss tomorrow and say, pay me every day. Let's say scripture. Don't do that. <laughs> HR will not like you because <laughs> payroll fees every single night is going to be just a headache. But what does the scripture say here? Because mm. we have to understand something. See, it's really easy for you and I as peers to... to go back and forth and exchange understanding and hold kind of a power structure as peers. You know why? Because if you do something wrong against me or I do something wrong against you, what are you going to do if I, if I commit a crime against you? You're going to say, oh, well, I, no worries. We'll go to the courts and we'll figure this out. We're both citizens of America and we both have rights and we'll, we'll let the courts figure it out. But what if you're not a citizen of America? What if you're a migrant worker who's worked a day's wage and the boss comes out and thinks this, I'm not going to pay you anything because I know if you try to go to authorities, I'll just call immigration on you. So I'm not going to pay you today. And all of a sudden, the migrant worker starts getting a little scared. The migrant worker starts getting a little nervous, starts thinking, well, maybe that's the case. I don't want to upset. I don't want to do things. I'll go along with it. I'll let the bully bully me because I don't have any standing on their level. Hmm. It's really easy to do standing on levels with one another, isn't it? When we're on equal footing. But have you ever tried to interact with somebody that's above you and they're doing something horrible and wrong? How oppressive does that feel? Doesn't that feel daunting to look at a situation and go, I have no recourse. I just have to take it. This is awful. This is horrible. It is. It's unjust. And what God is doing, it's really, really wild. He's not saying, as the rest of society and all cultures say, again, Rome, a Roman citizen male. Now, he couldn't do anything he wanted to another Roman citizen male of the same social standing. They were equals. You couldn't do that. But people below you, do whatever you want to them. And God says, not in my economy. In my economy, the migrant who has no legal standing, who can't sue you, pay them today. Why does he do that? Church, because the more that you come to understand God, the more you come to understand his ways above our ways, the more that you obey, you will see obedience as a good thing of desiring God, not the thing you get out of him. You will start to, you will start to obey because of desire, and once you obey, you will get more desire. You'll start seeing it as, oh, I understand now. Yes, of course, of course we shouldn't cheap out on the migrant worker who did a day's labor. Of course we should give them money. It's unfair not to do so. You will start changing your heart. You'll start changing your taste preference. You'll start understanding his ways above your ways. This is incredible uh, church leader, John Wesley. John Wesley was in charge of the Methodist movement. If you don't know anything about the Methodist movement, uh, it essentially says this, you can be perfect by doing good actions. That's what the Methodist... Look, if you're a Methodist out there, I apologize. I got like 30 seconds to describe your entire tradition. <laughs> it's going to be faulty. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm going to try. So, so Methodism, there's a method to faith. 
John Wesley, as he was over in the UK, he was, a, he, was, he was the best of us. He was an incredible student, incredibly smart, incredibly savvy, incredibly moral person, uh, worshiped all the time, had piety, had devotion. He's reading Leviticus 19, and he says this, you who are good and do good, who extend your loving kindness to all mankind, he's speaking of God, to the work of your hand, your image, capable of knowing and loving you eternally, do not allow me to exclude anyone, O Lord, from my charity who are the objects of your mercy. But let me treat all my neighbors with the tender love which is due to your servants and to your children. John Wesley got Leviticus 19 because it starts with brother, citizen, neighbor, everybody. And church, let me encourage you with something. If you are not ready to serve anybody and everybody at the drop of a hat, you're not quite matured yet in obedience. Why? Because you want to serve people that are close to your like, likelihood, your, your, your likeness. Birds of a feather flock together is an anti-scriptural understanding. Wanting to serve people that are like me is selfish. Do you know what's not selfish? And here's what's wild. Church, public confession time. I had something this week. HOAs are the worst. Can I just say that right now? I have something that's currently happening right now where I have a gentleman that I do not want to love. He is the HOA's enemy. <laughs> do you know what group of people pass the scriptures tell us to pray for the most fervently? Our enemies. Do you know that? So here's what's wild. Here's what's crazy. Whoever your enemy is, whoever the person you think to yourself, oh no, I would never be friends with them. I would never invite them into my home. I would never give them $1,000 just because they asked for it because they were in a pinch. That person's your enemy. Do you know what you're supposed to do for them the most? Pray for them. Love them, serve them, and hope they come to faith. Because you know what that does to us? Oh, Think right now, the person that is your enemy, the person that you can't stand the most. Think about asking God to give them all the blessings you've received, but instead to give it to them. Do you know what that does to your heart? Let me just summarize it. It flat out changes everything about you. Do you know why? Because you'll, be, you'll turn into John Wesley. Well, you'll go, I don't deserve the blessings that you gave me, just like they don't deserve the blessings that you gave me. So they and I are not different. We're the same. Do you see? Scripture first tells us you can't cherry-pick commands to obey, and secondly, you can't ch cherry-pick people to serve. Isn't that wild? Only the God of the Bible can do that. No other place does that happen. No other time. Christianity says the more you obey, the more inclusive your community will become. Do you want an inclusive community? You know how to get it? Be really, really obedient to the Scriptures. And you say... No, that's, that's not how it works. Get rid of rules, become more inclusive. Get rid of obligation, become more inclusive. Get rid of hurdles, become more inclusive. No, 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 no. Because you know what that is? That's cheap relationship. That's cheap grace. Slap a Jesus sticker on the back of your car and you're part of us. Never. Get up and make a, a, a public proclamation of faith. Raise your hand and you're good. You're in. You're mature. You're fantastic. Not in the scriptures. Because do you know who did that? 
you'll, you'll experience a theme. I have a favorite story of the Bible to preach on. If ever I'm in a pinch somewhere and I'm like, if my iPad was to just topple over right now and do that, we would have preached on uh, the, pro- the, I'm sorry, of the uh, rich young servant is what I would have preached on. I just would have gone straight into that because it's just a fantastic story. He says, I publicly align with you, Jesus. I've done all of the commands. I'm a good little boy. And Jesus says, come follow me. Do you see do you see, church, that obedience must come from desire, and the more that you obey, the more you will desire him. Not good standing, not good things, not rewards, not, not free of shame and guilt, and not positions of power for yourself. Cheap faith says it's easy. Christian faith says this, and look, I, I just want to encourage you. If you're not of faith, and you're checking out, and you haven't been to church in a while, and maybe you grew up religious, and you're coming back, can I just encourage you with something? If you want a simple life, an easy life, a comfortable life, Christianity is not for you. Because you know what it says in Scripture? Don't, don't give a little. Give to where you're out of position. Give to where it's sacrificial and it hurts you. Die for your enemy. Serve the least, the smelliest, the grossest, the weirdest that is unlike you. That's what the God of the Bible says. Because do you know who was without any cosmic power? You and I. Do you know who's imperfect and smelly and gross and flesh bags? You and I. Do you know who's not? God. And what did he do for us? He came and he served and he died and he opened up his treasure trove of heaven and he heaped it upon us. The more you serve others is a direct correlation to the more that you understand how much you've been served. And if you're stingy on your service, I want to encourage you. Maybe you feel that you've been been cheaped out by God. Maybe you don't understand just how much he's served you. Lastly, obedience ends with more desire. It starts with desire. I am the Lord your God. It continues as you obey, you get more desire. And then what you are left with is desire. The law has done its job. It's mentored you into desire and you start following the things of God, not because you have to, but because you want to. Our children are starting school back up again and and they always say, they're like, dad, and I do the total, again, I'm a dad joke. I'm just so good at them. And my kids roll their eyes all the time at me. So like, dad, I don't want to, don't make me go to school. And I go, son, you don't have to go to school. You get to go to school, which is like, dad, you're an idiot. I'm like, I know. I know. They're like, no, I have to go to school. You're making me. If it was my choice, I wouldn't. I go, I know. And so I have this rule. One of my sons doesn't like reading. And I keep telling him every single night at the dinner table, I say, son, you're going to leave this house loving reading. He doesn't love reading. I'm like, son, you're going to love reading when you leave this house. And he goes, no, dad, I'm not. I go, okay. This is the law. You will love reading. (laughs) The hope is that you desire to love reading, not that I make you do it. That's my hope. That's my goal. That's my desire. And at the end, that's all the desire we have left. How do I know that? How do I know that that Leviticus 19, the goal of all of Christianity is to become more like Christ and not like ourselves, to value his commands above our preferences, to desire his way more because we were given so much. How do I know that? Look at Jesus on the cross. There are two passages of Jesus' passion that are really, really, really hard for us to swallow. One is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In which he says, Lord, please take this cup. Please don't let me die. And then he adds, but not my will, your will be done. 
And then on the cross, he's dying. And he says to God, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? Those are very, very hard for us to understand. Very, very difficult for us to understand. And here's, here's Jesus's entire ministry, I think, couple right here. I don't want to do the hard things. Have you been there, church? I don't want to do the hard thing. I don't want to obey. It's easier not to obey. It's more fun not to obey. Jesus says, I don't want to obey. But then he says, your will, not mine. And then he goes to the cross, and on the cross he says, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And if you grew up in church at all, you, you, don't we try to explain that away? We try to say, no, 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 it was, it was just... It was just uh, he took all the sin of humanity onto him. So he was very sinful for like a nanosecond and he slipped up. But we understand why, right? Uh, you know why the Old Testament's so good? Do you know what Jesus was saying on the cross? He was quoting scripture. When he says, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? It's in the Old Testament. He's quoting scripture. He's saying, I am completely void of the presence of God. I am completely alone. I am cosmically dark on your behalf. I've shown you the way, I've lived the life, I've done the thing, and now I've given it to you. If you had a friend who was willing to give everything they have for you, no questions asked, no strength. I call it bailout buddy. You guys got a bailout buddy somewhere in your life? Or like if you did something really stupid and you're at the jail and you're like, well, I got to call this buddy. No questions asked, they're there with a bag of money, which let me know who those friends are. Because if they were able to get just a bag of money within a couple hours, that's awesome. And they show up, no questions asked, and they give of themselves, and they sacrifice their own standing, and they come and help you in your darkest moment. That's what Jesus did for us. There's this incredible movie, Legend of Bagger Vance. If you've seen it, go check it out. Will Smith, Matt Damon are in it. And there's this golfer who's learning the game of golf, and he has a bunch of rules. Bagger Vance is the caddy, and the caddy is somebody who walks alongside the golfer and helps them out as they play. And as he's walking along, Bagger Vance is showing Juna how to play. And he's teaching him the right way, and he's helping him with his PTSD he had from, from battles. And he gets to a point at which it's Juna. He, he comes to learn golf, and he plays golf, and he loves the game. And he follows every single rule of golf. And if you know anything about golf, there are like a million rules to it. Uh, it's, it's stupid how many rules there are. Can I just be honest? Like, like where you set the tee has to be within a certain matter. If the ball goes out of bounds, but in a certain amount of bounds, you get to take the ball and place it here, but only 10 feet away from where you... It's like, what are you doing? This is ridiculous. I have to be a lawyer to be a golfer. Why am I here? Juna is learning all of this. He, or it's like mixed fibers in, in your clothing. And he's playing the game of golf, and he comes to understand the glory of golf, as it were, according to the caddy, the caddy being the law. And he comes to a point at which the end of the movie, I'm ruining the movie for you right now, but it's an old movie, so back and watch it. At the end of the movie, Juna comes up and he's in a playoff with three other people, or two other people, three of them total, and they're about to win this entire tournament, whoever gets this hole. And he has this incredible shot and he, the other competitors are closer to the hole and he gets to this, the ball and he sees the ball and he sees a couple of blades of grass around it. So he starts taking them and throwing them away to get a clear shot. So his club head hits the ball cleanly and he moves one piece of blade of grass and the ball moves two inches. And it's the caddy, Bagger Vance and Juna, and a small boy with him. Everybody else is talking. Nobody else sees it. He's on the other side of the hill, and the ball moves. 
And Juno looks at the ball, and he just looks up, and he says, I have to report it. And the kid goes, no, 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 you're about to win. You're ahead. If you take this penalty, you'll be sacrificing of yourself. Don't do it. Winning is more important than following the rules. And he says, the ball moved. So he goes up and he tells the officials, and even the officials are like, are you sure it moved? Maybe it's just your eyes playing tricks. It's late at night. And he goes, no, it moved. Bagger Vance, his caddy that's been with him the whole time, starts shaking his, everybody's hand and saying goodbye. And you're like, where are you going? And Juno looks at him and says, I can't do this without you. I can't live life without you. And, and Bagger Vance goes, yeah, you can. I just saw you. My job here is done. See, the law is for you and I to know God's way. And once we come to God's desire, this is where Paul gets to say, all things are permissible to me. You're like, oh, I like that verse. <laughs> but not all things are beneficial. This is what he meant. You come to the law and you come to understand by obedience to God and structuring your life out of him, your heart is formed and comes a certain point at which the way in which you live life is the desire of God alone. Not rules. Rules are something you get when you're three and four. <laughs> Desire and motivation is what you do with the rest of your life. No different than faith. Uh, when I, I, I've shared this story before. When we were early on in my marriage, uh, many of us think that marriage should be free of all rules and restrictions and like laws for it. Like, oh, no, no, love will see us through. All we need is love. Uh, how many more love title songs can I come up with? Um, and we think to ourselves, no, 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 our, our marriage is, it, we don't confine ourselves to those things. Okay, I, yes, I, I get what you're saying, yes. But also, there's a phrase that not many people like that I use with my wife, and she doesn't like this, and she's right here so she can hear it again. Calling my wife the old ball and chain, and you're like, oh, jeez. And, and, and wives, you're like, oh, yeah, no, my, my husband, he, oh, gosh, I, I, have to, I have to do things with him. I have to do things all the time with him. Married couples do this. We're each other's balls and chains. And we're like, that sounds awful. I don't want to get married. It's beautiful. Do you know why? Uh, when we first got married, I hated musicals. Uh, many of you, Jonah and, and Riley are going to go to New York on their honeymoon and go see musicals, and it's going to be fantastic. And Jonah still looks at me every time I say that, and I think he flinches like a little bit inside of him, like, how dare you? Um, I, didn't, I can't stand musicals. I, I didn't when we were first married. And I kind of roll my eyes, and I, 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 I go to them because Haley loves musicals. And then we went to New York, and we saw Newsies live. And I'm thinking, why, why are people singing? Can't we just talk about stuff? Why are we jumping around on stage? Like, this is, this is superfluous. And I, I left Newsies, and I walked out, and Haley looks at me, and she goes, hey, how'd you like it? And I go, that was amazing. And she's like, stop. I'm like, what you, whatever. I go, no, that was amazing. And she goes, really? <laughs> I go, yeah. When we moved to Chicago, we, you know, uh, shocking other states, like, on the plains don't have really well-done musicals that come through town. So when we moved to Chicago, Haley's like, hey, we need to get a budget for musicals. And I go, absolutely, we should. And she goes, wait, what? I go, yeah, we should. Let's do it. This sounds awesome. This sounds fantastic. I would love to go do it. Now, what happened? What changed? Was it the rule that imposed upon me? Musicals are great. No. What changed? My relationship to one who loved them, that's what changed. Now, why do I want to spend money and time and energy going to musicals? It's because of the connection of the one I love. 
That's the desire alone that's still there. You and I are in a marriage relationship with God. And sometimes he feels like a ball and chain, doesn't he? I can't do this, I have to do this, I can't do that. All these rules. He's forming our hearts to be better bridegrooms with him. And in doing so, we want his way above our ways. The reason for the law, at minimum, church, at minimum, the reason for the law is to conform us to the ways of God as good brides to the groom. That's what we are to do. Just like Bagger Vance understood the caddy was there to conform him to the ways of golf, we are to conform ourselves to the way of God. Because he's not a God of contract that says, do these laws get good things? He doesn't do that, church. So then the question that the early church wrestled with in the New Testament was, well, then why do we obey any laws? No rules. No. Because you've missed the connection to the one you love. That's the problem. If you find yourself doing the actions of the gospel, if you find yourself submitting to the ways of Scripture in which it says serve the poor, serve the needy, care for the migrant worker among you, don't just preferential treatment to the brothers and sisters you have and the fellow peers, but also neighbors and everybody else, if you start doing that and you start loving your enemies, you're becoming more like Christ each and every turn. And in doing so, your desire to be like him is much better than your desire to be rewarded by him. Church, please hear, obedience comes from desire. Obedience comes from desire. So if you are in church and you think, well, it's the right thing to do, I have to do this, I'm gonna go about it, and you are only doing it out of obligation, can I encourage you with something? This is gonna sound so weird coming from a pastor. Stop. It's going to crush you. Because you will think you can do all the actions of the Bible. I'm here to tell you, you can't. You'll feel like a failure. And God will become a tyrant king instead of a loving brother. If you are a Christian, desire God's way above your way. Because you and I left to our own devices would be Mongols. We'd be tyrant kings and queens. Desire God, and in doing so, you will desire his way more. In doing his way more and desiring, you will serve all people and become more like him, even to the enemies among you. You'll pray that prayer of John Wesley. Don't let me have tenderness only for the people I love. Let me have tenderness for everybody. And if you don't, here's my final encouragement. Praise God more. Sing and praise God more. Well, that's really simple, Pastor. I know. The more you exalt Christ and the more you see him as greater than you, the more you will see your need to follow his ways because they're so much different than our ways. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to this week's COTV Sermon Podcast. For more info or to connect with us, you can visit us online at cotv.life. God bless and have a great week.